welcome back uh, to the Energy Flux podcast. So this is the last episode of the Energy Flux podcast before Christmas, and there's a lot to talk about. I'm having a little look back at what's happened in European energy markets um, this year, which is a lot, and um, trying to kind of do some crystal ball gazing and think about what this means for energy markets next year and looking further out the issue of decarbonisation and um, hopefully going to have a few calls coming in to uh, uh, to kind of broaden the conversation out a bit. Um, so I was hoping to be joined by some folks this week, but it being the last week of before Christmas, then it's a bit tricky to pin people down. So it's just me this week. Uh, but hopefully, like I say, if we get some callers calling in, we can have an interesting conversation. So the topic is why the EU gas crisis is not just for Christmas. And I thought I would start by setting the scene with a reminder of just how overheated wholesale gas and power markets are in the UK and Europe, and then dive into what is and what is not causing these prices to go completely crazy. And within that discussion, I'll hope to tease out why the extreme market tightness we're currently enduring isn't going to magically disappear anytime soon. And I'll stop periodically to check if there's anybody in the caller queue who wants to, to share their thoughts. So let's just remind ourselves where we are. The day ahead electricity price in Germany rose to 431 euros per megawatt hour today. In France, it's 442 euros per megawatt hour. Austria is paying 434 euros, Belgium 433, and it goes on. So, and what we've seen in the UK is that low wind production forecasts have helped to push the day ahead auction prices above 400 pounds per megawatt hour. And we've even seen hourly prices peaking at £1,500 per megawatt hour. That was for delivery over the 16th and the 17th of December. Now, these prices are orders of magnitude greater than the seasonal norms, and they're breaking new records by a big margin. Frankly, Europe's never been in a situation like this before. We've never even come close. And we're seeing the same thing in, in natural gas prices, too. In the futures markets, uh, the month ahead price of gas, um, looking at the, the January 2022 contract, that traded the, the equivalent of nearly $50 per MMBTU this week. That's, that's a million British thermal units. That's like a standard unit of gas, $50. And to, to put that in context, the price of gas on the Henry Hub, which is the virtual trading points on the Gulf Coast of the United States, that's $3.69 per MBTU. So European consumers today are paying well in excess of 10 times more for natural gas in the wholesale markets than Americans. In fact, we saw a really unusual turn of events this, uh, this week. The price of wholesale gas in Europe has actually risen above the spot price for liquefied natural gas in Asia. And I don't think this has ever happened before, at least not for as long as I've been tracking this space. And what it means is that for the first time, Europe is actually winning the global tug of war with Asia for spare cargoes of, of LNG. 
and we're seeing that play out in real time. There have been indications that LNG carriers that are laden with cargoes of liquefied gas that were headed for Asia are actually turning around mid-route and signalling for European LNG to import terminals instead because they've received instructions that they're going to capture a, a bigger net back, a bigger profit by doing that. And this is good because it means the extra supply um, might actually arrive you know, in the real depths of winter, a few more cargoes rocking up into some European terminals. And that extra supply might alleviate prices a bit when they arrive. And we really need some reprieve from these prices um, because a lot of residential, commercial and industrial consumers simply cannot afford to pay the prices that I've just described. And I don't like to be hyperbolic, but really, if this goes on for much longer, then it's probably not an exaggeration to say the lights will literally start turning off across parts of Europe. And in fact, really, it's it's not really hyperbole because it's already starting to happen. We've already seen energy intensive industrial consumers start to shut down production because it's simply not worth their while to keep churning out products and then selling them below the cost of production. It's it's an absolute nightmare scenario for for everybody because consumer goods, as a result, are soaring everywhere you look. And a massive driver of that is the absolutely insane price of energy across Europe right now. So when you look at the kind of energy situation in Europe, then really high energy prices are putting inflation on steroids. So it, it, it's a complete mess. It's an utter mess. Um, the, the, the question really is, like how, how do we get into this mess? And I've, I have to say, I'm, I'm always keen to avoid simple answers. And there are a lot of simple answers doing the rounds at the moment to this problem. There are lots of misleading or incomplete narratives being pushed by vested interests. And I think these do a disservice to the complexity of the situation that, that Europe's in right now. So what I thought I'd do is actually start by exploding some myths or at least explaining what I believe hasn't really caused the European energy crisis uh, before moving on to some of the factors that seem to have played a role. So Europe is not suffering from expensive gas or expensive coal or expensive electricity as a result of COP26. I think that should be quite obvious, but unfortunately it's not to some people. And it is a bit frustrating to hear people say that like high level decisions taken about the future are somehow affecting day ahead energy prices today. That's just not the case. You've got to travel back in time to understand what's happening in energy markets now. And I will get into that a bit later on. And, and like more broadly, I, I don't think you can lay the blame at the door of decarbonisation policies in general. So when people say politically charged things like, oh, fracking could have saved Europe, but it was banned by climate extremists, then you've really got to put things in perspective. You've got to remember that initial attempts to, uh, to explore for shale gas didn't really work out. There were lots of attempts made to validate the economic viability of the shale gas resource in markets like the UK, Germany, Poland. And these were at best inconclusive. And the UK is actually quite a good example. The government gave 
companies such as Quadrilla and Ineos uh, a really good crack at drilling some test wells, but they were unable to do so without creating mini earthquakes. Um, so the government imposed this traffic light system. They, they, were, they were monitoring the seismicity, the, 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 the tremors that were coming from the, the drilling and the fracking that was taking place. And you know, it was green up to a certain amount of intensity. And then when it passed a certain threshold, it went on to amber. Um, and then certain restrictions were imposed. And if it went on to red, then they had to shut down operations. And every time Quadrilla tried to, 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 to drill or frack a new well, um, uh, in fact, they didn't really get down to fracking properly. They were just kind of drilling test wells and doing flow testing. And they didn't even complete those properly because they kept running into the red light on the traffic light system and had to shut down again. So while we weren't able to validate the resource, um, it's like the fact that you weren't able to do that without breaching uh, a, a level of seismicity that was deemed unacceptable for local people just goes to show that, you know, fracking commercial volumes of gas was, was never going to work out. And particularly if you think, that, you know, we're doing this on a small overcrowded island populated by people who've turned complaining into a national pastime, then it helps you to kind of understand, well, what, what was the prospects for, for shale being a success in the UK? And I think it was pretty minimal. And, and that, I think, probably applies to, to, to much of continental Europe as well. And, and it's a similar situation in conventional resources. So in Norway, uh, I, I recall that the state oil company Equinor tried and failed to open a new oil and gas province in the Barents Sea. They looked for commercial volumes of gas um, and that's, you know, they were, they were allowed to do that. They, the, uh, their climate campaigners tried to stop an exploratory drilling campaign from going ahead a few years back, but the course allowed it to go on and Equinor drilled, but they just drilled a bunch of dry holes. And so this idea that they would have, you know, open up a new province and start producing lots of cheap domestic, um, low emissions profile gas, you know, within continental Europe, that was, that just didn't come to pass. Well, it hasn't yet. I think that there are still hopes in some quarters that the Barents Sea could yield some gas for Europe, but so far that just hasn't happened. So I think people have to accept that domestic oil and gas production within Europe is frankly in secular decline. The North Sea is a mature oil province um, and all the governments who have jurisdiction over the different bits of it are all trying, by and large, to squeeze every last economically viable drop out of the North Sea. So um, they're trying. You know, they, but like there is, there are kind of efforts to produce more oil and gas in Europe. It's just, um, it's just, it's not really happening. And I, so I don't really buy the narrative that climate policies have created an energy crunch in Europe. However, um, that's not to say that they won't in the future. And as I discussed on last week's show, the campaign to, to leave it in the ground, to halt the production of oil and gas, that does seem to be teeing up the potential for what could be a dangerous shortfall in oil supply. And that could manifest itself in some really extreme pricing this decade. And, and that could actually be much worse than what we're seeing today. Um, but that's not what's driving European energy prices to record highs right now. So you could say that the, the current energy crunch is a sort of warning shot, if you like, to remind people that 
hey, you can't turn off the old energy system before the new one is up and running. And it's going to take a very long time to go from renewables being 10% of the primary energy mix to 80 or 90%. We're talking decades. A lot of people are talking about Germany and its decision to exit both nuclear and coal-fired power generation. And both of these policies together will place an enormous burden on other forms of generation, particularly natural gas, because where are you going to get your power from? Um, and renewables, of course, they're going to scale up supposedly um, spectacularly this decade to, to, to kind of fill in the gaps. So that's the idea anyway. Whether that happens or not will determine what happens in the markets. Um, but again, that will play out in the coming years. That's, that's, not, you know, that's not what's happening right now. Um, the nuclear phase out doesn't come into effect until next year. That's when I think December 2022 is when Germany's last two nuclear reactors will close down. And the coal phase out, that's been accelerated to 2030 by Germany's new coalition government. But right now, and I've just checked, Germany is still generating about 8 gigawatts from nuclear and 26 gigawatts from lignite and coal. So you can't say that Germany doesn't have those, mega, those gigawatts. They're right there now, and yet still the markets are tight. Now, losing those gigawatts, losing 8 gigawatts of nuclear and 26 gigawatts of lignite and coal will be a huge challenge for Germany. And that is one of the major challenges facing the, the, the coalition government. Um, but yeah, again, it's, it's not what's kind of driving tightness in the market today. It's driving sentiment around what's going to happen in the future. But, you know, like day ahead power prices, they're, they're still high. So on the other end of the spectrum, we, we hear arguments that more renewables could and should have saved Europe from extreme fossil fuel price volatility, um, that renewables enjoy stable prices and they're not exposed to the vagaries of global commodity markets. And this is true, but only to an extent. Certainly like more and wind, more solar and wind capacity would mean you know, more electrons being generated from these sources, definitely. Um, excuse me, but we've we've seen a few periods of low wind and like low solar generation um in these very short northern hemisphere winter days. And and let's just kind of put some figures around that. So Europe has 220 gigawatts of installed wind power capacity both onshore and offshore um but generation has like the, the share that wind power has in the in the overall mix frequently falls to sort of 10 9 or even 8 percent of total eu electricity in recent weeks so so you can imagine like when when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine how much overcapacity would we need to to be able to still generate 40 or 50 percent of of demand during these dark wintry low wind periods um it, it it's like we need several orders of magnitude more wind turbines than we already have um so the, and i think the idea that we could have installed all of those turbines and solar panels and the energy storage capacity of course to 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 kind of smooth out the peaks and troughs and to match supply up with demand better in time to avoid this this current energy price spike situation i don't think it's credible to think that we could have done that in time um so and i think it is a legitimate question whether it ever will be because 
not only do we have to think about the power mix of today and the demand profile of today, which we're struggling to meet sometimes with more than 8% of wind, but you know, we, we want to electrify everything at the same time. We want to electrify heat by using heat pumps. We want to electrify transport by rolling out electric vehicles, passenger vehicles, electric buses. Um, and, and all of that is going to put extra load on the grid. So the, the, the demand profile of tomorrow is going to be much greater than it is today. And yet we're supposed to be meeting that from increasingly large majority shares of, of zero emissions power generation plants. But that's all, again, these are all questions for tomorrow. This doesn't really explain what's happening in the markets right now. And um, I've sketched around some of the kind of big myths about what's been driving European energy prices to these scary highs. So it's, let's dig into some of the big factors that have kind of actually brought us to this place. Um, I'll just check into the caller list before I do that in case anybody wants to call in and have their say. And if you want to um, to, to call, of course, just um, press the little button. I think there's a, a little telephone icon you can call in and and uh, and just raise your hand. And so to really understand the current energy um, energy outlook, you've got to go back in time. And you've got to look macro, like way back to the last oil price crash or, or even before that, to the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Because after the stock market meltdown, oil prices actually remained above $100 a barrel for a few years. But the, the, the stock crash, the financial crash, finally caught up with commodity markets in 2014. Of course, that's when Brent crude fell by about 50% in one year. Uh, and then it fell by another 50% in 2015. And that huge readjustment in prices prompted a mass hiatus in investments in upstream oil and gas projects. Because until then, new projects were priced up on the assumption that oil would never cost less than $100 per barrel ever again. That was the overriding narrative um, that just kind of blinded people to the possibility that the oil could could crash again, which it always does. Um, it, it's always been volatile. Um, so th there was this idea that kind of peak oil supply would would reach a peak and it would just keep prices sustained high forever. So so when oil suddenly crashed down to like twenty five or thirty dollars a barrel, which it did uh, on several occasions throughout sort of twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, then there were just scores of projects lined up that were rendered uneconomic and they were shelved. And, and so that decimated the oil and gas supply chain. Contractors went bust. Thousands of oil and gas workers were laid off. There was a great wave of consolidation. And it was only when that gap between the cost of building out new oil and gas supply was brought below the dramatically lower revenues that those supplies could expect to generate in this, this new low price environment only then did meaningful amounts of investment start to flow back into the upstream. Um, but that interlude, those years when investment simply came screeching to a halt, that sowed the seeds for a much lower profile of supply growth, the, and, um, and, and which we experienced only many years later because the lead times on upstream projects from the point of final investment decision to first oil or first gas is you know, to three, four, five years so a wave of project cancellations in 2015, 2016 affected the roster of projects coming on stream in 2019, 2020, 2021. 
So that's like really one big factor on the macro supply side that has left the world and Europe in particular a little bit short of energy right now. I don't think that gets discussed enough. It's it's too much focus on kind of politically divisive issues around um, like you know kind of climate policies um, and. And, and and all of this stuff but i think really like what's led to tightness is is like market factors and they're market factors that pertain in 99 percent of cases to the hydrocarbons supply chain the hydrocarbon sector um it, it's it's not really about climate policies yet and on the demand side of course we've seen some really extreme things happen and we have to talk about COVID in this context, or more specifically, how governments have chosen to respond to the coronavirus. And we're talking, of course, about lockdowns, these you know, restrictions on travel that you know, kill demand for road fuel, petrol, gasoline, jet fuel. Uh, we saw all manner of extreme things happen last year when you know, the price of oil went negative in the US briefly. Um, but all that did was create a huge pent-up demand for energy because when those restrictions were lifted, what did everyone want to do? They wanted to get out and travel, see people, buy stuff. So we've, we've seen the global economy slam on the brakes and then floor the accelerator. And when you put any system through that kind of extreme treatment, I think you can expect some friction. And that's exactly what we saw. Energy demand in Asia came roaring back, particularly in China, the factory of the world, churning out all the stuff that people want. And because countries like China, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and like across South Asia too, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they all rely on LNG imports to a greater or lesser degree to, to satisfy quite a large chunk of their domestic energy demand um, or, or natural gas demand. And that's when we saw this global tug of war emerge again between Asia and Europe for cargoes of LNG. And for the entire Northern Hemisphere summer and autumn this year, Europe was losing that war. Asia always pays more for, for gas or for LNG because it, 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 its procurement is run by state-controlled companies. They are mandated to procure gas at any cost. And we saw China issue this edict to its big three oil companies to procure to buy enough gas, enough LNG at any cost. That's exactly what they did. They just went out there and they just paid more than Europe. Every time the price went up in Europe on like the TTF gas hub in, in Holland, then, then, then the, the, the corresponding price of Asian LNG rose a bit more to make sure that cargoes kept flowing into Asia. That's the way the market works. Um, you know, he who pays the most gets the product. Um, and so, of course, in Europe, like Western buyers, they have to adhere to the, the logic of the market. So they just kept losing out. They couldn't win this, this, this battle. And it's only now, um, now that we've seen uh, North Asian gas storage capacity filling up almost to the brim, that Europe gets a look in to buy some more LNG. It, it's, it's really that simple. Like Europe is the market of last resort for like, liquefied natural gas. It always has been. And, and until there's some fundamental change in market structure, I think it always will be. And, and uh, as an example of that, again, take what happened last year in the midst of lockdown. What did we see? Demand cratered, oil went negative, And so there was a lot less demand for all energy commodities, including gas. So liquefied natural gas was um, flooding onto the market. 
and there was some new production coming on stream, there was nowhere for it to go. Um, so we actually saw this armada of unwanted LNG cargoes just floating around the mid-Atlantic and they all washed up into European LNG terminals because there was just nowhere to put the gas. So, so there were traders and well, particularly producers losing money hand over fist on these multi-million dollar deals of, of LNG. Um, but they, it was, it was, there was just kind of no option really. They were even using spare LNG tankers as storage because there was just nowhere to put all this spare LNG. It was just floating around the place. Um, they were losing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars per day by renting out these ships, but there was nowhere else to put them. Um, and now, of course, we're seeing the opposite happening. Um, so, um, but there might be some reprieve now. Like maybe some, some cargoes will come into Europe in sort of January, February, and they'll bring down prices again. Now, another thing that people talk about a lot in the context of European energy is the price of carbon. And of course, Europe has uh, an emissions trading scheme where you have to buy an allowance for every tonne of carbon dioxide that you emit in the process of generating electricity. And there's, there's quite a complicated relationship between carbon prices and power prices in Europe. But um, what we've seen this year is carbon prices have gone to like, like parabolic, unprecedented highs. And, and a lot of people have said, oh, look, you know, again, it's climate policies, you know, you and your carbon price driving up the cost of energy. It's, it's a bit more nuanced than that because the, the surge in carbon prices, certainly in this half of the year, has actually been a symptom rather than a cause of expensive power prices in Europe. Um, the reason for that is because it, it's all to do with something called clean dark spreads and clean spark spreads. So uh, the clean dark spread is the cost of coal-fired power plus the cost of buying your carbon allowances on the ETS. And then there's the, 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 the clean spark spread, which is the cost of gas-fired power plus the, um, the carbon, carbon price. So what we saw was um, that as the cost of gas, natural gas, became much more expensive, it actually was cheaper to burn the dirtiest power source, to burn coal and to you know, pay the corresponding carbon price for that than it was to buy a cheaper fuel source, natural gas, and buy fewer carbon allowances for that. So what does that mean? More coal-fired power plants were dispatching into the power market, um, and that created more demand for carbon allowances. So that pushed up the carbon price. Uh, and there is a graph doing the rounds by an NGO called Ember, which has a kind of composite graph of the power price in like maybe it's the german power price i'm not sure um and, and it shows like it's broken down between what component is natural gas and what component is is the carbon price and the carbon price component is it's it's like it's a tiny sliver at the bottom of the graph and over time that sliver becomes a little bit fatter towards you know as you go on over time but like really the i'd say like maybe 95 percent of the cost increase is attributable to the rise in natural gas. So it does goes to show that that you know while there are graphs of of the, the European carbon price kind of spiking up, when you put it into the context of like what does that mean for power prices, actually it it's not 
particularly significant. And I think even if you were to kind of say, all right, let's let's just get rid of the carbon price, then you would still have these insanely high power prices. Um, now, at the start of the year, one of the reasons that the carbon price did increase was because there were climate policies being unveiled that increased Europe's ambition to decarbonize, which all meant that there would be more demand for, 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 for buying carbon permits. Um, the Europe unveiled its Fit for 55 package of measures to um, was it for a 55% decrease in carbon emissions by 2030. And, and yeah, that, that led to a kind of real bull run over the first half of this year in carbon. Um, but it, it's funny because like the, the drivers for the carbon price increase quickly changed from being policy drivers to being like the market. The market was then actually suddenly saying, we, don't, we need more, more carbon permits now. Um, and so obviously that, that drove the price up um, really over the summer and autumn. And, and that's what we're seeing now. <clears throat> um, we've also seen outages, like some really unfortunate outages uh, and on, the, on the power production side. So in France, there have been a bunch of nuclear outages. It's, uh, there were some cracks discovered in some operational units, and uh, it, it just came at... It's like if you could choose a bad time to have a nuclear outage, this was it, because you know, we've seen periodic um, low, low wind and low or no solar generation coinciding with expensive gas prices and then you know on top of that you layer on like nuclear power outages in, in france and it's it's just it's it's just extremely unfortunate um so it, we've actually seen french power prices for a delivery in january i think they've even gone beyond 500 euros per megawatt hour um it's it's just it's just incredible um and there've also been also been some interconnector outages um, between, I think, the UK and continental Europe, and, and that's been that's been uh, a real driver of expensive um, prices in the UK too. <clears throat> uh, so I think the uh, the other thing that we need to talk about, of course, is where where else Europe gets its gas from, and Russia is obviously the major supplier of gas into Europe. I don't want to get too bogged down on the politics of it because it's, I, I could probably spend, you know, like several hours talking about that. And I don't know actually how much of it really matters in the context of the market and how, like how much we're paying at the moment. It, and, and also because there's, there's quite a, uh, there's conflicting data out there about what's really going on. So the, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which you've probably heard of, this subsea pipeline that's built from Russia underneath the, the Baltic Sea into Germany, that's, you know, it's been physically completed. It needs to be certified to be brought into operation and the German regulator needs to approve that. And this has just been an enormous geopolitical soap opera from start to finish. And we've seen the, the regulator delay that certification decision over and over again. And most recently, last week, this week, I think, they, um, they delayed it until the second half of next year at the earliest. And, and this kind of creates a lot of jitters because, in theory, you know, new pipeline means more gas, which means lower prices. But in reality, it's, I, I think Nord Stream 2 is a little bit of a red herring. And, and that's because we need to look a bit more closely at how much spare gas does russia actually have to be sending down 
um, the pipelines it already has, like Nord Stream 1 and the Yamal to Europe pipeline, which is the main uh, kind of onshore interconnector, which connects up fields in the Russian Arctic and Siberia, um, goes through Poland and Germany. And and Gazprom has not been making full use of its existing pipelines through Poland and through Ukraine um, into Europe. And it's it's hard to tell like what's really driving that because on the one hand, there are lots of uh, indications that that um, the gas storage facilities that Gazprom operates in Europe, um, they're actually a lot lower than gas storage facilities operated by other companies. So that's led to this kind of narrative of speculation around Gazprom's motivations. Like, is Gazprom being uh, opportunistic, trying to you know make a geopolitical point, trying to try to kind of squeeze Europe in, force it to to force the German regulator to to approve the startup of Nord Stream two. But at the same time, if if not Russia is having difficulty or is kind of you know stretching itself just to, to to cover domestic demand for gas and meet its contractual commitments with china and uh, with its counterparties in europe then is it really realistic to expect them to send lots of extra gas into the spot markets just to take advantage of high prices um when when the market's calling for it and and i'm, I'm not sure what the answer is to that question i i don't know it would be quite good if somebody was to call in and, and explain because I, I I look at this stuff and it's and it is it is not clear um, quite quite what's going on um, with with Gazprom, um, but the, the, there are lots of indications that politics are are a massive part of it as well. You know, and like with the build up of troops on the border of Ukraine, then it's it's turning into a really kind of weaponized issue, and the the, the discussion around gas in Europe and Russia is becoming very toxic. Um, so I think that th- this is going to be a very complicated relationship for like the foreseeable future, because like I said earlier, there's, there's no clear alternative supply source for gas going into Europe. Um, you know, domestic supplies are, you know, they're, they're, they're never going to be much better than they are currently. And, you know, this reliance on LNG, it's again, it's, it's, it's not a, a, a reliable source when demand is 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 high and supply is a bit tight because as we've seen you know asia almost always wins out in that tug of war so i I think there's there's really an argument here for um like russia and europe just to find a way to get along and i know it's very easy to say that and it's very idealistic but it's the only conclusion i can really get to is that we need some sort of understanding that there is a codependency here, um, that, you know, Europe is going to need Russian gas for decades. And and not only that, and, and I think this is something that doesn't get talked about enough either, but really um, Russia needs Europe because Europe, I think, buys 70, 80% of Russia's exports. So, you know, if, if, let's just say that Europe was European buyers were to disappear and stop buying Russian gas overnight. Well, who, who would buy, who would buy all that gas from Russia? Who would buy all that gas from Gazprom? Um, and what would happen to, uh, you know, the, the, the fiscal situation, the treasury reserves in, in the Kremlin, if, if 
Europe was to stop buying all its gas, all Russia's gas. Um, so there, there needs to be a, like a new deal, really, between Europe and Russia. But it just seems to be extremely unlikely that we're going to get to a place when the, the European Union is just so divided over all of this stuff. It, there's there are squabbles between member states over the most basic things in energy, like you know France and Germany are in the process of an enormous spat over whether nuclear and gas should be deemed green investments. Um, there's this thing called the the European Taxonomy for Sustainable Investment, and this document is going to determine which energy sources are deemed to be sustainable investments. And those that are on the list will essentially be um, prioritised for capital allocation for investment, particularly for funds which have uh, an ESG focus, an environmental social governance focus, because if they're deemed to be sustainable, that means they're compatible with ESG metrics. And so um, fund managers can allocate capital into those projects. So if a nuclear new build project is deemed to be sustainable then you know that gets a big ticket it gets it gets the funding it needs same goes for gas like if gas is deemed to be sustainable then it will it will get much more investment than if it isn't and this is this is causing untold ructions between france and germany and there are other kind of countries around uh, the peripheries who are taking sides in this in this debate and the eu council which is um, the institution where European political leaders from the member states, like the heads of states of, of each member, uh, member state of the EU, meet up and talk about these things. They had a big meeting this week, um, or last week, I think, and, um, and they, just, they just couldn't decide, they couldn't reach an agreement over, over the, the, the taxonomy and the status of, of nuclear and gas in that. And, and, and that's just, it, it's just like, if you, if you just can't decide something that as basic as that, then how are you going to kind of unify behind a common line, which is that, you know, we need a, an agreement with Russia over, over how we deal with, with, with gas imports. I mean, it should be, it should be very simple. You know, it should be a kind of mutually cooperative, um, you know, buyer seller scenario, but it's, it's anything, but it's turned into this kind of toxic nightmare. Um, so, so, that's why I think we take a step back um, and you look at like what's going to happen next year. I, I think like the, the idea that we're going to have any respite from the, the the volatility that's been roiling European energy markets, it's 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 just it doesn't seem very likely. Um, I think that we will see power prices and gas prices start to come down, um, maybe around sort of February March time. Um, you know, as as the temperatures hopefully start to to rise a little bit, then then I think we should see a bit of reprieve there. But but really, like what I was talking about the carbon price is is really important because right now, the the way the market is functioning is that it's signalling for more coal burn and less gas burn because there's just such such extreme tightness in the gas market, um, and and that's such a massive component of power prices that the market is saying we need to burn more coal because the level of gas in storage is is in danger of running precariously low. Um, I, I don't think gas is going to run out this winter. And I don't think we're going to see, you know, people who like, literally can't, you know, turn on the, you know, they turn on the gas stopper or, or you know, the turn on their central heating, it doesn't come on. I think the gas will be there, but it's more a question of, can you afford to pay for it? 
and that's that's like a really massive political question because if you know, a lot of consumers are protected by by these retail price caps um, we have one in the uk here um but those price caps are, are are not always reflecting the true market cost of the energy that's being provided so so while the price cap kind of protects most consumers um it, it and it, it, it's rising to levels that people can barely afford to pay it's still not covering the true market cost of energy and as a result of that we're seeing lots of terrible things happening like um the retailers the suppliers um are essentially being pushed into insolvency and um, we've seen i've lost count more than 20 s- suppliers energy suppliers in the uk go bust in the last few months um and the 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 whole retail energy supply segment is in a massive wave of contraction where it's kind of going back towards this oligopoly where you have the big six or seven suppliers and and uh and all these kind of smaller nimbler new players that came into the market to try to shake things up and introduce some competition they've all gone to the wall um all those players have um pretty much they've just disappeared um and and so that's that's like a really that, that that's a really <laughs> tricky thing to sort out because you know you think on the one hand well the regulator let these companies come in and and compete in in this way and 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 as a result you know, they 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 just weren't prepared for for a situation they didn't have the resiliency built into the system to to be sure they could keep trading if power prices went, you know, an order of magnitude above anything we've ever known. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of regulatory question around all of this. Like, are, are we really prepared for a world in which energy can spike to like 10 or 20 times what it normally is, is at at any given time? Um, and I've spoken in previous shows about, about volatility and how that's, that's just going to be part of the energy world. Um, it's it's just it, you know the, the more we decarbonize the more we push for uh for for kind of greener alternative sources of energy the more we um introduce volatility into into the way that energy is traded um so you know i think energy suppliers really they need to to have uh resiliency built into their their business models to make sure they can they can withstand these these kind of these kind of price swings um so it's looking pretty bleak um the temperatures are dropping in across europe next week or so i'm told um and it looks like we're going to uh, have a very cold winter a very expensive winter as well um so hopefully um i'll be able to keep the lights on and keep broadcasting um but i'm not over christmas i'm taking a break uh the next show comes out i think we're going for the 10th of january uh let me just check yeah i think it's the 10th of january yeah monday 10th of january that's when we're back so um be sure to subscribe and uh sign up for notifications to to hear about when the next show comes out um but thanks for listening i'm just checking no callers yet no still no callers okay well thanks for listening and i'll see you again next time